This is exactly right. It's 1943 in the Kingdom of Bulgaria. As the Second World War rages, King Boris dies suddenly and every nation is a suspect. The Butterfly King premieres March the 21st on Exactly Right. It's a cruel tale of a doomed royal dynasty. Somewhere, the truth is out there. Listen to The Butterfly King on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome to my favorite murder. That's Georgia Hardstar. Hi, that's Karen Kilgariff. Hi. Hi. Hey. How are you? Look, we need to greet each other <laughs> and then we need to greet America. That's right. And Sweden. And the UK. And parts of Finland. That's Australia. Don't forget Antarctica. And Scotland, which is not part of the UK. Sometimes people listen to us uh, <laughs> in in Cuba. Do they? Dubai? Is that a <laughs> Dubai? 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 <laughs> oh. Du- that's exciting to think people are listening to us in Dubai. Did we forget Canada? Always. But you know what? <laughs> Just as soon as I memorize those provinces, yeah. Canada, we're going to come at you. Saskatchewan, fucking Victoria. Please don't do this. Why are we I'm doing this? I'm so nervous. Why are we doing this? Hey, enemies. We're like setting ourselves up for people to be mad at us. You know why? Because we like the negative attention. You must, <laughs> as a podcaster, to. as podcasters, you must. If, if the last five plus years, five and a half years show us anything. Is it our five and a half year anniversary? Today. Today's <laughs> the day. I got you this and I pulled out an edible arrangement. Oh, my God. Pineapple with chocolate. Who doesn't want that <laughs> hideous taste combination? I still think edible arrangements are the best joke in the entire... Like, my favorite fucking joke. This is not an ad. You can't use promo code murder yet. <laughs> yet. Until they realize. That's right. That's my that's my goal in this podcast is for someday for an edible arrangement ad. Here's what I would like to ask. Finland uh, <laughs> or whoever gets this is edible arrangements mm. a Hollywood joke. Uh-huh. Because things like that get sent around this town so often yeah. where it's like, congratulations on on potentially maybe getting this, that or the other thing. Yeah. Here's some pineapple covered in dark chocolate. Right. Or is that a thing that like everybody does it and people because I know like Sherry's Berries, great podcast supporter totally. over the years. Totally. And that is a thing people love, like a chocolate covered strawberry. Right. It's like got a class to it. It is. Class it's fancy. Yeah. So is it like is that is it just a thing like, no, Karen, people love that. People love it. They or, love it everywhere. Another question is, when people get it, are they like, well, why didn't you just get me a fucking bottle of fancy champagne? Like, you're actually being not funny and cheap. <laughs> well, but not, it's not cheap, but... <laughs> but you're also, you're assuming every time someone sends an edible arrangement, it's a joke. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, Martin. I, I don't think it's a... Like, I still eat it. It's exciting, but... It's funny. I, I think people love it. Also, sometimes there's just cantaloupe that they cut into the shape of a flower. Oh, my God. Yeah. With a little like um, watermelon in the middle. Yes. Stamen. Pistol. Stamen. Crocus. <laughs> no, Why are we naming things we don't know? <laughs> uh, anyhow. Anyway. 
Thanks for the edible arrangement. I really appreciate it. I let it go rotten on um on my kitchen well, table. Because how is it going to fit in your fucking fridge? Also, how does a person eat that much fruit and chocolate mixed together? It's not healthy. It's actually completely healthy, but it's not healthy. The thing is, the thing about this podcast is if you're interested in true crime. Yeah. Well, then obviously this is the place to be. Obviously. But at the same time, it's like that's nobody's one interest. They also have interest in... um fruit arrangements yeah different parts of the world true what else and greetings greetings different ways of saying hi. finland <laughs> uh hey here's some good news okay robert durst was found guilty of murdering susan berman last friday amazing it feels like there hasn't been as much like fervor about it it's like kind of low-key well i think that uh it's that's the kind of thing where the story has told itself by right. now and i think everyone kind of expected that the story yeah. would have been bigger if he was found somehow yeah. not guilty but um i think when things that's i think that's how things kind of go yeah. when it's what everyone expects yeah it doesn't hit as hard and no one wants to give that asshole more attention than he already fucking has probably <sighs> but i'm really happy to hear that i am too because the the murders this is the alleged murders um all the all this the hell he hath yeah. wrought it really uh and because he was so rich yeah there was so you know he, he went for so it. long yeah. just getting away with it well i hope he rots in prison i and, you know it, may, it makes me wonder should i be so greedy which part makes you wonder that because <laughs> i don't know there's no part of this story that makes me think of karen kilgara <laughs> really Every story makes me think of Karen Kilgara. God, that's weird. The greed, you know. <laughs> it makes me wonder if I should be a sociopath with black uh, pupils that take up my whole eye. Yeah. And you should start stealing sandwiches from grocery stores. <gasps> that would be a good move. Peeing in the sandwich. Didn't he pee in one of those like ready to make ready made sandwich um, things? I don't remember that part of it, but maybe I didn't follow the story all the way through. Uh, I tend to not do that. I think. It stuck out to me because it felt like rage peeing, which is such a remarkable thing to do, especially inside a store in like New York City or wherever he was. What's rage peeing? When you're really mad, so you pee on something oh, like, yeah, you'll all shit. pay. All yeah. you sandwich eaters will pay. Yeah, that happened to my friend. Like she lived in Florida and we were out for a night and she had a vegetarian or vegan sticker on her car. You know, we were very young. And we came out to some fucking jock peeing on her car. Because she was a declared vegan? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow, That's everybody. Pee, right? Take your corners, everybody, and relax. <laughs> he was peeing, like, in the handle of the door. So, like, when the person had to open the door, their hand would be in pee, but they wouldn't even know it. So what's the point? Yeah. That's the kind of thing that you... uh, Yeah, you, you think you're getting them. Right. But if they just think it's, like condensation right from the you know a marine layer that rolls yeah. in while they're in the club then you know they just go like ew <laughs> and wipe it on their pants it's a and, secret gotcha yeah it's his little secret he's gonna yeah. take, take throughout life with him oh i peed on a vegan's car once you know i think i've told you the story but one of the scariest things that ever happened to me was once my friend Susie sullivan and i the great suzanne sullivan mm. who used to work at the san francisco improv uh-huh she uh and i went down to one of the pride festival because uh, like in san francisco 
it there's like different neighborhoods have events on different weekends. Yeah. So we got super drunk and went down there to meet our friends. Um, Hell yeah. At one point, I tried to find a bathroom and every single we were in um, the Tenderloin, no, no, no. South of Market, South of Market. Um, and there, none, nowhere had a bathroom. No, events don't have bathrooms. No, especially back then. Like, yeah. and the the play, the businesses around there were like, no, yeah, get out, you. everybody. Yeah. And at one point we walked by and there was just a big open kind of empty lot uh-huh. where they were about to build apartments or something. Yeah. And there was, it was just lined with men in kind of like leather daddy outfits peeing <laughs> against the wall. Or yeah. Something. And I was like, I, Susie, I have to pee. So we found what we thought was like a downstairs to like a basement. To okay. The, kind of like stairs down yeah. off the street to nothing. Like a doorway or whatever. And she goes, just go down there. I'll, I'll sit on the step and watch for you. So we go down there and I pulled out. I'm wearing black tights with shorts, of oh, course. Oh, no. Because so it you was to, like get naked from the waist down. 1991. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's it's <laughs> I'm in a, in a bad position. And there's a guy walking by and he stops and looks down and goes, are you peeing down there? That's someone's house. <gasps> and I go, what? No, we thought it was, you know, whatever. Yeah. And he goes, what? And he, he starts yelling at us. But I think he can tell, oh, wait, they're drunk. Yeah. And they just made a very bad call. Yeah. And that's when the door behind me opens oh, no. and a guy dressed in full leather, leather daddy outfit. Oh. It starts going, are you being on my front door? Oh. And I'm like, oh, my God, oh, my God. We had no idea. And then the guy who was yelling at us starts defending us. And he goes, Aww. no, wait, they didn't know. They didn't know. Oh, get up here. And then like we run up the stairs and then those two guys start fighting as we run away. <laughs> It was mayhem. And I've I've had like that permanent like it's now been 25 year cringe. Well, because the sound of the door behind you oh, had and, to be. And like, I don't I have no interest in peeing on anyone's front sure. step. I don't, I don't want to. I don't think it's OK. Yeah, I would never ever do it. No, you don't advocate for peeing on oh. people's doorsteps. It's kind of not your thing, especially not like you know, kind of keyed up gay men who are like into whips and bondage. I don't want to mess with them. No, you're not trying to disrespect a leather daddy. I fully bow to the leather leather daddy community. As you should. As we all should. As we definitely do. And maybe bend and pop our butt up a little bit. You bowed, but the wrong kind of bowing. (laughs) More like crouching and squatting i was squatting and we were already the kind of people they have no interest in it's just not fair though because like the guys up top could just take their dicks out that's what they get to do yeah and we have to it's just it's a whole issue it's a whole issue and it's like hey drunk girls maybe don't don't go be a tourist (laughs) at at the at the gay fair the gay street fair because no there's no services for you it's not for you it's not for you yeah we were basically like, it was kind of on par with like when bachelorette parties go to like drag shows. Oh, yeah. Tourists. Yeah. And kind of like, yeah, yeah. everything's for us. And it's like, it's not. It's and not. they don't want you here. It's gay tourism. Mm. And it needs to stop. <laughs> and that's our stance to, for today. It's a strong episode. one. It's it really a strong is. one. But let's also not cut off finances to the gay tourism community also i really want to go to a drag show so i also want to be like it's not okay for anyone but me and you well it it also you better go to a drag show because that's some of the best comedy you're ever going to get in those are people who are trained and they're so fucking funny they're so good at comedy 
because they've been defending themselves for most of their lives. Yeah. So they have it right there. It's that thing of, did you have a good childhood or are you funny? Yes. Did, exactly. What's the one you took me to in the basement of the Mexican restaurant? <gasps> Casita del Campo. Casita del Campo. Who did you take me to see? Was it, it um, Sam Pancake and Drew Droji? No, but I love them. But it was... Uh, was it the Golden Girls? No. Keep going. Jackie Beats. Jackie uh, Beats. Jack, my, uh, I love my friend Jackie Beat. Uh, one of the best, funniest, most talented drag queens. That was one of the best shows is. I've ever been to, period. Yes. It was so funny. When Jackie goes around the room asking everyone for money, mm-hmm. I gave them all of my money. It was like, <laughs> take all my money, take my purse, take everything I own. Because that's talent right yeah. there. The talent, the singing, the the uh, parody songs that Jackie writes about all kinds of crazy. Sh- I mean, like, you just have to see it. Yeah. My favorite. So Jackie and I used to write. Uh, my first writing job was on a sketch show for the WB. And Jackie was also one of the writers mm-hmm. on that show. We were trying to write a sketch about the John Travolta film phenomenon that had come out that year. <laughs> and uh someone goes, <clears throat> or no, it was about. Michael, the John Travolta movie. Oh, wow. Where he was an angel. Yeah. And then someone goes, wait, maybe we should make a reference to, to the movie phenomenon. Like somebody's trying to get something else going. Yeah. And Jackie goes, Oh, come on. on. <laughs> Imme- like immediately. And I was like, wait, that's the best thing I've ever heard Where in my did life. You come up with that. It was that's so a- fast yeah. and so perfect. And also really like mean, like, Oh, like that's the dumbest. Oh, come on. Yeah. Yeah. It's so funny. Oh, I love it. So talented. Everyone look up Jackie Beat. Jackie Beat is the most talented. I um, I, I adore him. I think I believe his pronouns are him. Okay. But Jackie, if I'm incorrect, my apologies. Speaking of funny people, how are you? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't see it coming. I'm good. Um I'm good. I got a sunburn on my face. Uh which looks is looks cute though. I I shouldn't say that because I'm so anti like sunburn like we we got to protect we have to you look good like with a little pink glow really it's not like sunburn red it's like pink glowy glow wow thank you wow because this this afternoon it was sunburn red in a way where i was like am i gonna have to go to the like the melanoma department tomorrow (laughs) because this is this is how my family you know processes yeah but i just um didn't think about it was that kind of thing where i went into the sun early in the day and went, I haven't put on sunblock yet. I'll do it. I'll oh, do yeah. it. I'll do it. I'll do it. And then never did it. No. And I've now. got a legit, like weird, as if I tried to lay out in the sun sunburn. Oh, it's good. I, I It's cute. I wish I, I wish I didn't look good with the tan because I have face to show it now. But man, sometimes it's just cute to have a little to have a little, hey, well, I don't know. I was outside. Hi. Oh, I party sometimes. What outside. are you? I guess I party outside. <laughs> have you been partying outside lately? No, because I quit smoking. Okay. <laughs> so I have no You're reason. So to not a smoker. I know I'm not. <laughs> I, I, I picked it up during the pandemic. Like a year ago, I was like, I'm bored out of my mind. I'm just walking in circles around my house. I need something vice-y to do. And you didn't have a hammer and nail to just drive into your palm? (laughs) Or my lungs? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I picked up smoking. I was like, this will be a funny hobby. Because you probably did it like 
when you were in your teens. Oh, yeah. Right? I smoked in my teens. And then, you know, when you're out at a bar and someone has cigarettes and you bought my cigarette and then you regret it the next day. So I took up smoking and then it became a real thing that I became a smoker in my <laughs> 40s during the pandemic <laughs> out of nowhere. It wasn't like I quit for 10 years and then went back to it. And Vince was like, I think <laughs> I like a challenge. And Vince is like, you're way past just like quitting cold turkey because I tried to quit a couple of times. Yeah. Then I was like, watch me and quit. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> I, well, that's how I work. Thank God you could. Yes. It's not that easy. And I think it's because I was never a smoker, really. Yeah. And then I had this one day where I couldn't take a deep breath. <laughs> and I, it's probably, it was probably like anxiety, but I was like, well, this is actually damaging my lungs now. So fuck this shit. Yeah. Quit. Good. Yeah. So now I don't go outside. I've never used to go outside. Was my <laughs> that point. was the only reason you were going out there. <laughs> yeah. Shit, man. <laughs> Thank yeah. you for being honest. That yeah. was really, that was, that was really honest. Hey, look, I mean, the thing that's funny is it wasn't that long ago where people smoked all the time yeah. indoors in restaurants, yeah. smoking, quote unquote, smoking sections. Yeah. Doctors fucking recommended it or whatever. Yeah. Asked. But I mean, like even in as recently as the 90s. Yeah. Smoking or not. I bet a lot of our listeners don't fucking know that because they never had to deal with it. Yeah. Like up until the late 90s in certain places, you'd go in like a fucking Coco's and they'd be like smoking or non, which, yes, just meant the whole fucking place <laughs> smelled like cigarettes. Yeah. Like if you were in non, but you were back to back against yeah. the smoking section, you were in the smoking there section. There was no plexiglass. No. They smoked on airplanes. Yes. So everyone who doesn't smoke can go fuck themselves, essentially. It's and also it's weird. And I think it's really telling because this all the ban happened before the Internet existed. Right. So it just happened. And that's it. Those are the rules. The end. Yeah. And no one got empowered to go. I can hit people because I want to smoke. Right. Like, it didn't happen. Did you ever smoke on a plane? I think no. I was too young to have done it. You did it? No. OK. No. Do you th are you disappointed we never got to have that opportunity just to see what it was like? <laughs> well, it seems I don't want to be introducing fire to any no! scenario that where you're already a little bit scared. I wouldn't smoke on a train. No, you shouldn't smoke near an airplane. No, nobody should. No, it's yeah, that that one was a weird. But I mean, that shows you how in the 50s. Literally everyone smoked all the time yeah. and it was not a big deal. I wonder if they really didn't know that it was bad for you. Uh, they or, didn't for this for a long time. Do you think anyone was like, yeah, but I know it is. Well, I mean, people must have known. It feels terrible. Yeah. It feels it terrible. hurts. Yeah. It makes you sick. Yeah. The book, Alan Carr's uh, The Easy Way to Quit Smoking. If people need to quit smoking, that's like the Bible. Yeah. So check that out. You should definitely, we should all quit smoking. Yeah. It's, it's very, <laughs> it's bad. not good for you. But I think, I feel like we're talking to a bunch of people who are like, uh, yeah, yeah. dummies, <laughs> we know. Yeah. Gen Xers. It's not fucking good for you. Yes. I will always say I'm a Gen Xer, even though I'm not really, but I will. But you're, um, cusp. Yes. There was, I read some article that they were calling you guys geriatric millennials i love it isn't that mean no i'll take it <laughs> that's better than just plain old millennial true it's uh god that man that dividing line is a very strong dividing line it is it's cultural hilarious. references though i insist that i have the gen x cultural references so yeah because you had older siblings exactly. so you were right in there with exactly. all of it exactly yeah have you 
Seen ne- anything never, fun? Never. Oh. <laughs> ne- never, and you have no proof that I did. <laughs> Seen anything fun? I tried watching a little more Game of Thrones. We're going to have to get back into it when I have a chance to watch it again. So, yeah, sometimes you need to take a little break. Yeah. Let's there. put a pin on that one. Sure. But I'll get there. Yeah. Because I do like it. It's not a binge. Well, I was just talking to Bradford about this because he also started it. Re, like re is started a rewatch mm-hmm. and he, we were talking about how it is not a binge type show there's a lot to absorb mm-hmm. there's a lot to follow mm-hmm. and it was when it was on hbo on i believe sunday nights it was the perfect like oh what's gonna right. happen next and it was like cliffhanger one a week that yeah. makes sense i am watching why the last man you are yes what do you think i like it it's a little soap opera-y right but fucking diane lane is the most beautiful fucking woman she is talk about a champion for what 30 40 years fucking ladies and gentlemen the fabulous stains i can't believe that's her her. if you guys haven't watched it go find it and watch it yeah uh she's amazing i (laughs) also she was cherry in the outsiders the best line in cinematic history in my opinion is when matt dylan is is uh Dally is bugging her and then she turns around and goes, get lost, hood. And that's how she says it. Like the intonation. When I saw it in the movie, I was like, I want to say that one day. I want to talk like that. Um, I I have an admission that I didn't realize that only the men had died until like the third spoiler alert episode. But no, because it's called Why the Last Man. Yeah. How would I not have figured that out? Because we don't pay attention to things like that. It's just like. I literally thought, and I'm not, this is not a joke. I started watching it because I, th- I thought it was a new season oh, right. of The Last Man on Earth with Will Forte and Kristen Shaw. That was a good show. And I was like, yay, it's back. It's fun and funny. Let's have some fun, funny. And then it's like dark, deep, blood And then a thing spurting. that's truly the apocalypse. But I just was really impressed with how that, I mean, that first episode was just. Yeah. I like it a lot. I mean, we're going to definitely. It hooked you. Keep yeah. Watching it. Yeah. But, I'm uh, interested. And wow, he's hot. Isn't he? Who, that main guy? But I love the CIA, the Secret Service. Oh, Agent 355. Yeah. Also, the concept of that, it was like of the secret, secret service that the, Secretly. That the president doesn't know about. Yeah. It's awesome. Ashley Romans. She's incredible. Like, She's great. I watch it just for her. Oh, and Amber Tamlin's really good in it too. Like I Amber hate... Tamlin is unrecognizable and amazing. She's so good. I hate it. her in it, even though yes. I like her a lot. You don't. This is not your daddy's Amber Tamlin. No, that's not the way it's. That's not the same. <laughs> I literally, I was watching. I'm like, who is this woman? Who? Is? And then I went. Ah, she's familiar. And when what? I saw that it was Amber Tamlin, I was like. What? How is this possible? She's so good and unlikable in it. It's great. Do you know that I was an extra in her TV show in the late 90s? Dr. House? No. Um, Joan of Arcadia. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Joan that's, of Arcadia. That's the one I had totally forgot about until I watched this. Like People have sent me screen grabs on Twitter of like, I just saw you in the background of Dar- Dharma and Greg or Sleepover. Like oh, There's a not- Clueless, the TV show. <laughs> but the one I totally forgot about because no one's ever sent me a screen grab is Joan of Arcadia. That's hilarious. Yes. So what were you doing? Milling around the town square? No, I was a teenager. You know, I looked so young. So I was at, at their high school walking. I mean, I was a teenager probably, but walking around just in the background you know like it's like between periods and here comes georgia walking by amber tamlin you know that's my backpack on night 
How often did you do that? I did it like a few times, seven or eight times. Wow. It was really fun back then. Like before the internet, I just sit and read all fucking day and then go be in the background of it. And then you got to see how like TV works and movies works and shit. It was really fun and see famous people. There's get nothing paid. more exciting. Yeah. yeah. And then get paid for paid it. And free lunch because and breakfast too, because I was broke as fuck. <laughs> so I'd show up early and like eat the crappy craft service that they give to extras. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Load up, put some scrambled eggs in your purse. <laughs> then you're out. <laughs> then you read your book and then you're That's gone. That's right. I love that. No, but, but yeah, she's so, she's so good at that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, that's a good show. Yeah. It's exciting to find one. That you're excited to go back to because I feel like because of the way I binge mm-hmm. and because of my, you know, because of all of our interior habits these days, it's like, oh, I don't have, I finished that. There's I've nothing seen left. It. Yeah. There's nothing left. There's nothing. <laughs> all right. Well, should we get going? Yeah. Should we do this job? Let's definitely do our actual true crime podcast. <laughs> yeah. Let's do it. <laughs> For once in our lives. Can we please? You're Here first. You right? I am. I am. Okay. Can I take my shirt off real quick? Uh, sure. I have an undershirt. I have an undershirt. <laughs> a little hot. <laughs> See? Wow! Whoa, boobies! No. <laughs> I have a little camisole, a cami. Can on. I, you know what? Can I take my shirt off for this record? <laughs> Georgia, is there anything scarier than trying to log into an account? And it tells you that your password is incorrect. And then you try again and it's the same thing. And after a few more failed attempts, big red letters appear saying you've been locked out and your account is suspended. That happens to me all the time, Karen. But scary password stories can have happy endings if you give 1Password a try. 1Password is a user-friendly password management system. It's trusted by consumers, families, small businesses, and large-scale enterprises. If you're tired of being the family member everyone texts for a streaming login or the unofficial keeper of all those shared work credentials, it's time for you to pass the torch to 1Password. They allow for secure login sharing. With 1Password, you can securely store more than just passwords, autofill everything from usernames to payment details and personal info. They'll also notify you about potential data breaches. 1Password saves everyone time. And in many cases, that save time equals money saved. The accounting department will thank you. Don't just listen to us. I mean, you should, but don't just do that. The Associated Press uses 1Password to secure their sensitive information in high-risk areas. Right now, our listeners can get a two-week free trial at onepasswordcom MFM. That's two free weeks at one, as in the number one, password.com slash mfm one password.com slash mfm goodbye okay so you may have already heard of this but this is a very disturbing of course very awful story of the rosewood massacre okay so let me tell you some broad strokes. There's a movie directed by John Singleton mm-hmm. and starring Ving Rhames that you can watch. Mm-hmm. But for this story, some of the sources, the Tampa Bay Times, which used to be called the St. Petersburg Times. Okay. Um, so that I kind of reference both. But there's an article revisiting Rosewood Truth Be Told by Dan DeWitt, an article from The Guardian called Rosewood Massacre, A Harrowing Tale of Racism and the Road Toward Reparations by Jessica Glenza. There's, of course, Wikipedia has the Rosewood Massacre article. There is Rosewood Massacre uh, on a website called blackpast.org. And that article is by Trevor Goodlow. 
there's a, actually a website that's managed by the Rosewood Heritage Foundation, rememberingrosewood.org. Okay, so I'll tell you a little bit about this. So in 1982, uh, an investigative reporter for what's now called the Tampa Bay Times, but at the time was the St. Petersburg Times, mm-hmm. named Gary Moore. He drives out to a city called Cedar Key, and it's near the site where the unincorporated town of Rosewood once stood. And Gary Moore's looking for a story. So he remarks to a local woman that the area has a, quote, gloomy atmosphere. And the woman says back to him, I know what you're digging for. You're trying to get me to talk about that massacre. (gasps) And Gary Moore did not know about the Rosewood massacre. So he wasn't digging for that. But now, because he's a journalist, he's like, now I do need to know what you're talking about. And so he begins an investigation. And that leads him to a man named Arnett Doctor. So when Arnett was five years old, his mother named Philomena Goins Doctor tells him and his family a story. She says, your family built churches and schools. They had hogs and cows and huge vegetable gardens. And all the land in the town where I was from was owned by black people. Philomena goes on to describe her life in the town of Rosewood, Florida. It was founded in 1847 and, of course, subject to the segregation of that era. So Rosewood became a predominantly black community that was self-sustaining and relatively prosperous. But all of that ended in January of 1923 after a white woman from a neighboring town makes a false criminal claim involving an anonymous black assailant, which incites an angry white mob who invade and destroy the town and many of its citizens. Mm. And then for the next 25 years, our net doctor obsesses over this story of the town of Rosewood, but his aunts, who he goes to talk to about it, um, they were taught never to discuss the details of what happened in Rosewood, primarily for their own safety. So it is basically a taboo subject in the family. Yeah. So we'll give you a little background. Rosewood sits on the northwestern side of Florida. It's about nine miles east of the coastal city of Cedar Key. And of course, it's named after all the cedar forests that were there. So Rosewood begins as a logging hub um, and a very successful one, which leads to its settlement in 1847. It's They opened two pencil factories in oh. nearby Cedar Key, making pencils from all the timber that's gathered in and around Rosewood. Ticonderosa? No, not that. I mean... I don't think so, because they closed. And we know that the Dixon Ticonderoga brand and product are still going strong to this day. Right. I don't actually know that for a fact. (laughs) I I just know the pencils are still around. I mean, pencils have to get made by someone, right? They have to. And because so people so rarely use them all the way down to the nub, which is, as you know, my favorite thing. Sure. Fully used pencils. Anyway. So basically, these factories create jobs that draw both black and white Floridians to Rosewood and increase the the population in the area. Mm-hmm. So soon the town gets its own post office. Um, it gets its own Florida Railroad train depot. By 1890, these cedar forests actually get completely deforested mm. and Cedar Key's two pencil factories end up having to shut down. Um, so the marginally wealthy white population in Rosewood packs up and they move about three miles away to the city of Sumner to try to look for new jobs. Mm-hmm. So Rosewood becomes a predominantly black community and that community flourishes. 
They're almost entirely self-sustaining. They have their own school. They have three churches, a Masonic lodge, two general stores, one owned by a white family and the other by a black family. Mm -hmm. They even have their own baseball team, the Rosewood Stars. Many black families in Rosewood enjoy a middle-class lifestyle and the luxuries that it affords. And a former resident named Robbie Morton remembers Rosewood as, quote, a town where everyone's house was painted. There were roses everywhere you walked. Lovely. Yeah. So there are basically two prominent families in town, the Carrier family and the Goins family. And the Carriers take over what remains of the logging industry in the area. And the Goins family introduces a turpentine industry to Rosewood. The Goins family is so successful that in the by the early 1920s, they are the second largest landowners in all of Levy County. So one member of the Carrier family is a woman named Sarah Carrier, and she works as a laundress for a white family named Taylor, and they live in the next town over of Sumner. So 30-year-old, the patriarch of that family is 30-year-old James Taylor. Okay. Right? So James works as a millwright, which is basically a craftsman who fixes and maintains factory machinery, and he works at the local sawmill. So he gets up every morning before dawn to go to work and he leaves behind his wife, Frances, nicknamed Fanny Taylor. She's 22 and they're two young children. So Fanny is known around town to be a little bit odd, very obsessed with being clean. She's actually the the floors of their home are wood and she has bleached them white and keeps them white. Yeah, Uh, she's a little distant from with her neighbors. Mm But Sarah, who who Fanny refers to as Aunt Sarah, doesn't mind her. She thinks she's fine. Okay. So as an employer, does it's not that big of a deal. Mm-hmm. But then in the early morning hours of January 1st, so it's New Year's Day, 1923, one of Fanny's neighbors allegedly hears Fanny screaming. So this neighbor grabs a revolver and runs through the darkness to the Taylor's house to find Fanny laying on the ground bruises all over her face and scuff marks all over her perfect white floor. Oh my God. Fanny tells the neighbor that a black man broke into her home through the back door, beat her and then ran out. So according to this neighbor's account, there's no sign of Sarah carrier who normally would have been there at that time. Okay. But Sarah carrier has a completely different story. She was there at the house. She arrived early that morning and she brought her granddaughter, Philomena, to help her do the laundry. Mm. And that her granddaughter, Philomena Goyens, is Arnett Doctor's mother. So that's how this all connects. Okay. So according to Sarah, she and Philomena both see a man leave out the back door of the Taylor's home. But they say it was almost noon when this man left. Mm. And they say that man was white. Okay. So Sarah and her grandchildren, Philomena and her brother, they have seen this white man before. And Sarah's theory is that Fanny's having an affair with this white man that they meet after Fanny's husband leaves to go to work every morning. Mm -hmm. And that basically this one morning they got into a fight and this guy beat her up. So she had to make up a story of what happened. Right. Not surprisingly, when Fanny reports this assault to Sheriff Robert Elias Walker, He believes her without question, Mm -hmm. and he assembles like a posse Mm -hmm. to, quote unquote, investigate. But of course, word gets around about this attack and the story quickly morphs from assault to a rumor of robbery and rape. 
Now, the problem with this is the day before in nearby Gainesville, Florida, the KKK had just held a New Year's Eve rally where they had actually marched behind a banner that read first and always protect womanhood. So you can imagine what happens when this rumor of a black man raping a white woman reaches these Klan members who are all nearby in Sumner. They just happen to be gathered around. Which was... Unfortunately, and as many of us know, which was what was happening in 1920s, especially in Florida, but the South and in the Midwest, it was a hotbed of racist oppression. So in 1866, Florida's black code laws were overturned and they included laws against black people voting, bearing arms, gathering groups for religious worship, and barring them from reading or writing. So it was actually a progressive move to overturn those laws. But of course, white supremacists were furious about it. So in response, they retaliate with violence. And around 1915, the Ku Klux Klan, which had basically kind of died off a little bit, they reemerge. And by the mid-20s, lynchings in the name of so-called vigilante justice become the norm, especially in Florida, in this area. Yeah. So basically, when this report of assault on Fannie Taylor gets comes in, Mm -hmm. Sheriff Walker asks around and he learns that a black prisoner named Jesse Hunter had recently broken free from a chain gang and was at large. Jesse Hunter immediately becomes the prime suspect with no evidence and no motive. And as many as 400 Klansmen start pouring into the area to, quote unquote, help track him down. Sheriff Walker, instead of saying, no, 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 we have to. This is a legal procedure. So he tries to deputize them all, but there's too many to manage. The sheriff reaches out to a local convict camp and asks to borrow their dogs (gasps) to help with this search. So there, it's basically an unruly mob. Yeah. It splits into several factions. Some go with the search dogs and the search dogs have picked up the assailant scent that goes from the Taylor's home into the city of Rosewood, the town of Rosewood. Mm-hmm. And so basically the mob decides that one of the black residents in Rosewood is probably hiding Jesse Hunter. Mm-hmm. So the dogs lead the mob of 100 to 150 men mm. to the home of Sarah Carrier's nephew, Aaron Carrier. And they find no sign of Jesse Hunter, of course. Mm-hmm. So instead, they drag Aaron out of his home in front of his mother, who is crying and pleading for them <sighs> n- not to kill him. Yeah. But of course, they are out for blood now. Yeah. And this is very disturbing, very horrible, as all of this kind of violence was back then, right. really, really beyond... They tie Aaron to the back of a car and they drag him for three miles. He somehow miraculously survives this attempted lynching. And when he does that, Sheriff Walker puts him into protective custody in nearby Bronson. Now, that might sound nice, but he's basically putting this victim in jail. Yeah. After he after an angry white mob attempts to lynch him. Yeah. Years later, some Rosewood survivors uh, would say that they suspect that the white man Fanny Taylor was having an affair with knew he was in trouble when he left her house after that beating. Yeah. And he ran to Aaron Carrier's house to hide because Aaron was a Mason and 
the theory is that Fanny's lover was also a Mason and uh-huh. so they knew each other. And so Aaron hid the man and helped him escape, uh-huh. uh, not knowing what the result of that helping would be. Wow. And that would also explain why the dogs were led to Aaron's house on that scent. Totally. This is now just a theory. It's the survivor's theory. It's yeah. unproven, but it would make a lot of sense. So because in Rosewood, the few white people that still lived in Rosewood, like the the white store owners, mm-hmm. like they people got along with them. Yeah, it would. There is not a contentious situation there. Yeah, and he knew he could hide out there as right. opposed to some some other friend. Right, and he had to go somewhere close. Right, you know. So at this point, the sheriff's newly deputized Klansmen are drinking. They're getting more angry. They're getting more violent by the minute. They're t- completely out of control. So Sheriff Walker advises all black locals to stay at the turpentine mills where they work so that basically for the rest of the night. So no one gets caught on the street and no one gets caught in their house with these mobs. So he basically created this situation and then realized he had made a huge mistake Mm -hmm. uh, and incited mob violence, essentially. Not a mistake, but yeah, much something much worse. Even though everyone's been warned, there is a blacksmith named Sam Carter working at one of the mills who actually has a run in with one of these mobs. They beat him and they torture him into, quote unquote, confessing that he's hiding Jesse Hunter. And so they force Sam to lead them to the spot where he's hiding him. But of course, there's no trace of Jesse. He's not actually hiding him. Right. Um, He was never hiding him. So then one of the men just shoots Sam Carter dead. Then they hang Sam from a tree as a warning, quote unquote, to the rest of the Rosewood community. So it is a it's a like a berserking mob going around this area. Oh, my God. So basically after this, this is kind of like the pinnacle of that violence. And then they start leaving Rosewood. So. On their way out of town, a few stragglers are lagging behind and they bump into Sarah Carrier's son, Sylvester. Sylvester's nickname is Man. And basically, he is everyone in Rosewood loves him. Mm -hmm. They respect him and they kind of fear him. Mm -hmm. He's a great shot. He's an excellent hunter. He's tough. He's confident. He's even musically talented. Mm -hmm. And basically, they... They see him. They start to try to harass him. They tell him he needs to leave town. And Sylvester's like, you're going to need more people because that ain't happening. Uh And of course, this infuriates these few stragglers and they run back to the mob wherever, you know, they have all ended up to let them know that this has happened. So so they do get more people. And for the next three days, these Klansmen and this this out-of-control mob recruit more white men while all the while stoking each other's anger. Sheriff Walker allegedly tries to disband this mob. It's too little. It's too late. Mm -hmm. So on the evening of January 4th, 1923, a group of about 30 Klansmen return to Rosewood and surround Sarah Carrier's house where Sylvester lives. There's somewhere between 15 and 25 Black Rosewood residents hiding inside the home. So some are her neighbors who saw this white mob coming and knew that they would be safer if they were all together. And some of them were Sarah Carrier's relatives who had come for the holidays and were just there visiting their grandmother. Oh, God. So 
when the mob descends on his mother's house, Sylvester's armed and he's ready to protect everyone that's hiding inside. And so the accounts of what happens next vary because it's basically survivors accounts. But basically two of two white men from this mob approach the front door, uh, a man named Polly Wilkerson and a man named Henry Andrews and shots are fired, but no one's sure who fired the gun first. But in that first wave of bullets, Sarah Carrier is shot and killed. Oh, my God. Yeah. And then um, Sarah's nine-year-old niece, Minnie Lee Langley, comes downstairs to see what's going on. Mm. And that's when her cousin Sylvester grabs her, pulls her into the firewood closet with him. So mm-hmm. basically, he's like, get in here, you know. Yeah. Uh, so this is according to Minnie's like firsthand account. Wow. She says, quote, he got behind me in the wood bin and he put the gun on my shoulder and them crackers was still shooting and going on. He put his gun on my shoulder. He told me to lean this way. And then Polly Wilkerson kicked the door down. And when they kicked the, the door down, cuz Sill let him have it. Holy shit. So Sylvester Carrier battles the mob well into the morning. Oh, my God. But Wilkerson and Andrews are killed. Several of the men are wounded. And so the mob ends up backing off. They never end up overtaking the house, but it is believed Sylvester is killed in the battle. Although, according to Arnett Doctor, Sylvester lived to escape to Louisiana. Wow. That, but that's no one else knows that. They think he died. Um, Arnett says Sylvester would sometimes reach out to the family by um, sending a postcard, but that he remained in hiding until his death in 1964. Holy shit. So he just the rumor was he died. So no one else would come after him. Right. Exactly. And also he shot and killed two white men. So he could never go back. I mean, he was he was, you know, always in danger, basically. Yeah. Now, all the other accounts say that Sylvester died in that standoff, mm-hmm. and that would logically kind of make the most sense if he was one of the only people with a gun inside the house. Yeah. But nothing is official, of course, because none of this ever got processed correctly right. by the authorities. Right. Several other people in Sarah's carrier's house were wounded, including one child who actually had their eyes shot out uh. but survived. Luckily, the other children managed to escape by running out the back door and hiding in the brush or in the swamps. But even after all that violence, the mob is not done. As Rosewood survivor Robbie Martin, the niece of blacksmith Sam Carter, Mm -hmm. who we talked about earlier, she would later put it, quote, they didn't find Jesse Hunter, but they noticed that here's a bunch of black people living better than us white folks. (sighs) And that disturbed these people. So the next day, news outlets from all over Florida and all over America publish varying accounts of the January 4th standoff. Mm -hmm. Most of the papers sensationalize the fact, counting higher death tolls and embellishing the story to make it seem like, quote, unruly black folks had started a race war. But black run newspapers like Baltimore's Afro-American, however, they frame the story as one of heroic black people trying to defend their home from Klansmen with the help of Sylvester Carrier, who they refer to in the article as a desperado. The white folks of Florida read the national and local papers. They don't see any other side of the story. And so the mob is reignited. Oh, Jesus. So on January 5th, a mob of two to three hundred 
angry white men return to Rosewood and unleash hell. They set fire to churches, loot and burn Rosewood residents' homes and shoot people as they try to escape. So they light the house on fire. And then as people try to get out of the burning building, they shoot them. Oh, my God. The first known victim of the day is a woman named Lexi Gordon. When she sees the mob descend on Rosewood, she orders her kids to run out of town. But Lexi herself has typhoid fever. Mm. She can't escape. So she tries to hide under the house as it starts to burn. But the mob finds her there and murders her. Oh, my God. So in this chaos, the Rosewood residents, they run for their lives, most of them into these swamps. A survivor who was a young, a nine-year-old boy, his name's Wilson Hall, he remembers trudging through the swamplands with his mother and the rest of his family in the early morning darkness. They made their way to Gulf Hammock, which was a 15-mile walk from Rosewood, where they finally find safety. Other families find refuge in the swamps themselves, hiding out for days in the uncharacteristically cold Florida temperatures because it's January. Right. They're soaking wet and they're they're in a, just in a swamp. Right, right. Sylvester's brother, who's Sarah Carrier's son, James, he's among those who escape through the swamps. He finds a hiding place when the turpentine factory manager, a man named W.H. Pillsbury, takes him in. A white man takes mm-hmm. him in. But the hiding place doesn't last very long. And the mob soon finds him and forces him to dig his own grave and then shoots him and buries him in it. <sighs> mm-hmm. This mob is so vast and widespread that a man named Mingo Williams, who is 20 miles from Rosewood near the town of Bronson, he's out collecting sap for the turpentine factory. Mm-hmm. He's stopped by people from the mob. When they ask him his name, he says his nickname, which is Lord God. And they interpret that as him being oh. uh, arrogant. And so they shoot and kill him on the spot. Fuck. So it's just they're berserking. Mayhem. Yeah. By the end of the day, at least two women are raped and the combined death toll of of everything jumps to at least eight. Although it's believed there are many more unrecorded assaults and unrecorded casualties because they're doing things like walking people, making people dig their grave and then shooting them and putting them in it. So we would never know. Right. What what have any any of that is. And and it is I think we've talked about this before, but the when it came to lynchings, nothing, nothing was official. Nothing was run through the. The authorities, nothing was investigated. It was all it happened. And then it was just supposed to be a warning and a threat. And that's all right. Never investigated or yeah, not treated as a crime ever. So Sheriff Walker calls for backup from the surrounding town's sheriffs. Now he's trying to police the mob he basically created. Governor Kerry Hardy contacts Walker saying he's ready to deploy the National Guard to help out. Yeah. But Sheriff Walker declines. Oh, dude. He says he's got everything under control and he doesn't anticipate further disorder. So Governor Hardy takes his word for it and goes on a hunting trip. Meanwhile, the manager of the turpentine factory, he does what he can to help his black employees. He and his assistant, who's a man named Johnson, they're doing everything they can to convince the white employees not to join the mob and not to be a part of it. And Pillsbury's wife helps by smuggling some black people out of town while she can. Wow. The two general store owners, John and Mary Jo Wright, who are white, mm-hmm. they hide black residents in their home through the night and into January 6th. 
And Sheriff Walker and his deputies, who are not part of the mob, mm-hmm. they're helping residents make their way to safety at the Wright's house. So they're basically find, trying to find people yeah. and get them to basically white people's safe houses. Wow. And then having spent years working and trading with the people of Rosewood, there are two white train conductors who are brothers named John and William Bryce. So they decide they're going to lend a hand. So they basically drive the train as slowly as they can through Rosewood so that the women and children can hop on and they can take them up to Gainesville to safety. Mm-hmm. And they end up doing this several times. Wow. But they're too afraid of retaliation from basically the Klansmen and the mob yeah. to go back and help the men of Rosewood who who have been left behind, who were right. last to go. Right. So after a full day of frantic evacuations, a mob of about 150 returns on January 7th, and they spend the day burning down what's left of Rosewood. At the end of the rampage, the only building left standing is John and Mary Jo Wright's house because it's a house of white people. Right. Uh, Rosewood is otherwise completely destroyed and completely deserted. So fearing the optics of what has now just become a gigantic clan fueled race riot, mm-hmm. um, Governor Hardy decides he needs to take some sort of action. Mm-hmm. Um, so on February 11th, 1923, an all white grand jury meets in Bronson, Florida to investigate the events of the first week of January. Over the course of four days, they hear from 25 witnesses. Only eight of those witnesses are black. Mm-hmm. Even still, the accounts are incredibly damning. But it isn't enough for the all-white jury to prosecute anyone. Although the judge condemns, quote-unquote, the acts of the mob, when all is said and done, no arrests are made, no one's prosecuted, and no one is held accountable for the horrors of January of 1923. Wow. News reports immediately following the trial note that the events were, quote, deplorable and a, quote, foul and lasting blot on the people of Levy County. But after a week, um, basically, if this story falls out of the news cycle completely, and it only takes a few years for the country to forget about the massacre entirely. Um, Sarah Carrier's husband, Haywood, had been on a hunting trip during the week of the massacre. So when he returns home, he finds his wife, his brother, and his son have all been murdered, and his entire hometown has been burned to the ground. Oh, my God. His grief untethers him, and he dies just a year after the massacre in 1924. Wow. Um, according to official reports, there are eight deaths that occur during the massacre. Yeah. Uh, the two white men, C.P. Polly Wilkerson and Henry Andrews, and six black residents of Rosewood, Sam Carter, Sarah Carrier, Sylvester Carrier, James Carrier, Lexi Gordon, and Mingo, Lord God Williams. But Minnie Lee Langley remembers, quote, stepping over many white bodies, unquote, during her escape. And other people recall, other survivors recall seeing a mass grave of black people. Oh, my God. So the actual death toll probably starts at 27 and who knows how high it goes totally. the surviving former residents of rosewood scatter around florida and try to start their lives anew for some survivors the silence that they 
that they choose is a matter of safety. Of course, the trauma haunts them. Yeah. But they they fear that revealing themselves as survivors might put a target on their backs. Minnie Langley just wants to protect her kids' innocence. It takes her 60 years to relay the story to her children. And she would later say, quote, I didn't want them to know what I came through and I didn't want to discuss it with them. I just didn't want them to know what kind of way I come up. I didn't want them to know white folks want us out of our homes. So some of the survivor's descendants, like Arnett Doctor, see power in keeping the story alive. So when reporter Gary Moore finds him in 1982, he's more than willing to share what he knows about the Rosewood Massacre. Behind his mother's back, he goes with Moore to the original site of Rosewood and tells him Philomena's story. But when Philomena, his mother, finds out, she gets so angry she slaps him across the face and threatens to disown him. She wanted her son to know the family history, but she still feared what would happen to them if they spoke out. And this was 1982. Oh, my God. The trauma. Yeah. PTSD. Well, and also just it's not like the racism got any fucking better. Right. So in a later interview, Arnett comments that is, quote, Aunt Beauty said it was a wise head that carries a still tongue. And I'm still sitting here running off at the mouth right now. (laughs) So the resulting story that Gary Moore writes for the St. Petersburg Times, which would later become the Tampa Bay Times on July 25th, 1982, it actually ends up getting made into an episode of 60 Minutes. Oh. Yeah. Which then prompts living survivors. They see it and then they come forward to tell their stories yeah. um, and publicly share their accounts of what happened to them that night. And more importantly, those Rosewood survivors and their descendants start to find each other. Oh. And on July 1st, 1985, they hold their first annual Rosewood family reunion in Lacoochee, Florida. They also form the Rosewood Family Advisory Committee, of which Arnett Doctor becomes the chairman. And he uses that position to contact high-powered lawyers in hopes that he can find someone who will fight for some form of reparations for these survivors and their family in court. So after Philomena Goins Doctor, Arnett's mother, passes away in 1991, Arnett's determination to gain justice intensifies into an obsession. What he doesn't know is that there's already a claims case in the works that was brought by other survivors and descendants. So he finds out about that. He's hurt that he wasn't involved, but eventually he he joins in the fight and they bring him in to help. So the case is filed in 1993 by a law firm called Holland and Knight on behalf of 13 survivors and their descendants. Um, including Arnett Doctor and Minnie Lee Langley. And in 1994, on the grounds of recouping lost property, a bill passes awarding a $2.1 million payment to be split amongst those who can prove that they either lived in Rosewood in 1923 or are the descendants of those who lived in Rosewood. Wow. And not long after that, Florida's Department of Education sets up a scholarship fund for Rosewood descendants called the Rosewood Family Scholarship Fund. And in 1995, descendants of the Rosewood Massacre survivors create the Rosewood Heritage Foundation, which works to educate people across the U.S. about the Rosewood Massacre. They organize traveling exhibits, um, heritage tours, and they provide information on the existing Rosewood Family Scholarship Fund for descendants who choose to pursue higher education. Then in 1997, 
director John Singleton, who found out about the story and where was incredibly struck by it. Mm-hmm. He collaborates with Arnett Doctor to make the film Rosewood. The movie receives a lot of negative criticism for fictionalizing and some say over dramatizing certain details. And Arnett also receives backlash from some of the fellow survivors descendants for taking more credit than they believe he should for reviving Rosewood's story. And while Arnett may be considered controversial, Steve Hanlon, who's one of the lawyers who secured the payout for the survivors and their families, stated, quote, point blank, no question about it. It wouldn't have happened without him. Um, So in 2004, Florida declares Rosewood a historical landmark. Mm. They erect a marker along State Road 24, listing the names of the known victims and briefly describing the events that took place in January of 1923. And in March of 2015, 72-year-old Arnett Doctor passes away in Spring Hill, Florida, just a few hours south of Rosewood. Today, both the Rosewood Heritage Foundation and the Real Rosewood Foundation, both run by descendants of the survivors who have now all passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, they continue to work towards educating the public about Rosewood and about racial injustice. One descendant named Lizzie Jenkins, who works with the Real Rosewood Foundation, emphasizes the importance of telling painful and disturbing stories like the Rosewood Massacre. She says, quote, It has been a struggle telling this story over the years because a lot of people don't want to hear about this kind of history. People don't relate to it or just don't want to hear about it. But mama told me to keep it alive. So I keep telling it. It's a sad story, but it's one I think everyone needs to hear. And that's the story of the Rosewood Massacre. Wow. I'm embarrassed that I had never heard of that. Well, but I think this is exactly the kind of stuff that does not get talked about. And it certainly doesn't get taught in most classrooms at all. Absolutely not. You know, that's incredible. Great job. Thank you for telling that. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So today I'm going to tell you the story of the man who thwarted an assassination attempt on Gerald Ford name Oliver Billy Sipple. So we're going to be in San Francisco for this one. I know the city. You love that place. You pee everywhere. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> Hopefully this takes place near where I have peed. You got to hope. I mean, the, the odds are highly in my favor. <laughs> okay. The sources used for today are a Washington Post article by Lynn Duke, a New York Times article by uh, Jesus Rangel, an AP News article by Jennifer McNulty, and All That's Interesting article by Natasha Ishak, and an episode of Radio Lab, which I'll talk about more. Okay. Um, all right. September 22nd, 1975. President Gerald Ford is in San Francisco attending a World's Fair Council meeting. I hate to stop you after your first sentence, but didn't Squeaky Fromm also try to kill? Pre- OK, she I'm did. Sorry. I, I knew that we been, were I know. so confused. I'm like, <laughs> did a bunch of people try to kill that guy? Here's the thing. Yes. And. No one, this story is so not well. I, I'd never heard of this before. Yeah, I've never heard of it. Until recently, I just saw an article, you know, and was like, what the fuck? Yeah. Okay, sorry. So sorry. So, every, yeah, everyone tried to kill Gerald Ford. I mean, Jesus. <laughs> Poor guy. Okay. But lucky guy. He he got lucky a couple times. So, uh, <laughs> I know. It's 
Wild. It's intense. That afternoon, so the afternoon of September 22nd, 1975, a crowd of about 3,000 people are gathered outside the St. Francis Hotel in Union Square, mm-hmm. hoping to catch a glimpse of the president as he walks out of the hotel to his limo, which is parked out front. At 3.30 p.m. after speaking to the World Affairs Council, Ford emerges from the hotel and walks towards his limousine. And he pauses, of course, to to wave at the crowd. Hello, hello. They're all cheering. And they're just across the street. Uh, What the Secret Service don't know is that in the crowd is a woman with a gun who, as she later says, was hoping to incite, quote, a violent revolution. Oh, Sarah Jane Moore is a a 45-year-old West Virginia woman. She had had five divorces behind her. She had four children. And she had moved to San Francisco and joined in radical politics. Five divorces? Five at 45. Love is tough. It is. It's tough. Listen. Look, relationships need a lot of work. (laughs) Constant. And then at a certain point, you just got to start over. That's right multiple times. You got to let go and let God. Okay. So she gets really into radical politics. Seems like she's a big fan of Patty Hearst's, like just obsessed. The day before she had um, been picked up by police on an illegal handgun charge and police had confiscated a 44 caliber revolver and 113 rounds of ammunition, but had deemed her not a threat and had um, released her. She's not a threat, but what about all her ammunition? Her ammunition is definitely a threat. I mean, what did she... Lipstick? (laughs) It was a cute cute handgun. Um, I think she also worked as a paid informant for the FBI, so they might have been like, let her go. Really? Yeah. Is that your personal theory? It's not. I read it. (laughs) So I don't know why I said I think. (laughs) No, but I like the idea that you'd be like... This feels to me yeah. like she's a paid informant for the FBI. Here's my theory. And it's loose. You know, it's not based in reality. I don't know where I'm getting this, but... <laughs> So, but that day she had another gun on her, a 38 revolver. And as the president waves at the crowd, Jane Moore reaches her hand into her purse and pulls out a gun, aims it at Gerald Ford's head and pulls the trigger. Now, uh, there had been another assassination attempt on Ford just 17 days earlier. Oh, so shit. Fucking people, women are coming uh-huh. at him everywhere. <laughs> These hippie women with their big ideas. They're radical, inciting. So by Manson family member Lynette Squeaky Frome, um, she had approached him outside the California State Capitol building. There's photos of it, not video, right? Yeah, photos. photos. Um, and she's just an arm's length from him, mm-hmm. takes this gun out, points the pistol at him, pulls the trigger, but because she had not chambered around... Don't I sound like I know what I'm talking about? Yeah, you do. Thank you. The gun didn't fire and Squeaky was arrested. Yeah. So back to San Francisco. So Sarah pulls the 38 and fires the gun. She misses Ford's head by just five inches. Mm. The bullet instead ricochets off the side of the hotel and strikes this poor fucking taxi driver named John Ludwig in the groin. Oh, no. Bad day for him. It just a bruise. He was fine. He survived. Yeah. Oh, thank God. Um, President Ford freezes in place. And as Sarah's just standing there with her hand holding the gun, realizing she has to shoot again, she goes to take another shot. But before she's able to pull the trigger, a man in the crowd lunges at her, grabs the gun, pulling it down while holding her arm. And um, his brave act gives him enough time to tackle 
the woman and Gerald Ford survives his second assassination attempt in three weeks. I mean, the, it's horrifying. Yeah. But that idea that you'd be like, well, I went through this horrible thing with this. Yeah lunatic manson acolyte yeah and you know and i'm sure there was meeting after meeting about how we're going to tighten up you know the game and you know can't let this happen again and then it just fucking does but both times it's so it says a lot about it and that both times for the rest of the day he went on with his meetings and stuff he was all business he was such a businessman he didn't give a shit he was like that's like my sister to nora where it's like you can keep crying but you have to move toward the car you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, you're just, allowed like, to have a fucking can, meltdown. Look, we have a job here. <laughs> you're still the president. You gotta keep yeah. doing that job. I mean, I would take a day off if I if I stubbed my toe. I would run straight back into the hotel mm-hmm. to the bar. Yep. Give me that whatever the topmost shelf, anything on there. Yeah. And then be like, and no one's allowed to talk to me. Well, back then in the limo, he probably had alcohol everywhere. Cigarettes were being <gasps> fucking, you know, like he had it there. Oh, I hope so. Yeah. I hope so. He hope, gets on the fucking, what's it called? Plane. President plane. Air Force One. And later days. <laughs> I mean, they were all drunk all the time, too, besides cigarettes, right? Yeah, but uh, here's the thing. If he was drunk, he he would not have frozen. He would have kept moving. But like, that's very like, he froze like. Deja vu. (laughs) This again? What? But this time a gun actually fired and like by five, hold on, how many? Five five inches. inches? That's very close to one's head. That is too close. That's as close as you want a bullet to be to your head. Definitely. So instead of becoming a national hero, though, and winning all the president awards, whatever they're called, um, this. The presidential fitness award? That's the one. Okay. This moment of bravery ruins the man's life. What? Okay. Let me tell you about him. Okay. His name's Oliver Sipple, and he's born on November 20th, 1941 in Michigan. He's one of eight siblings raised by very devout Baptist parents. He joins the Marines in 1967 and serves a tour in Vietnam. He's injured twice, including a head injury. One of the times Oliver is receiving treatment, the hospital he's in is bombed. What? So it's just a very chaotic tour. Mm. Um, when he returns to America, he suffers from what they used to call shell shock, but I'm sure would now be diagnosed as combat PTSD. Mm-hmm. He becomes very emotional, starts receiving treatment at a Veterans Affairs Hospital, He's found to be 100% disabled due to emotional trauma, um, which I think is just a pretty normal thing that happened After back effect then. After war, yeah, yes. Especially Vietnam. Yes. During all four, during all Fourth of July weekends, Oliver has to stay in a VA hospital so he can be away from the sounds of firecrackers very and explosions. Com- it's very common for veterans, veterans of, of all kinds yeah. and in all processes is very common right fireworks so upsetting it is on march and they didn't know how to deal with it back then you know right they yeah they didn't know how to deal with most things back then (laughs) but especially stuff like that where especially if you were like a soldier it's like no you have to man up you have to be you're not supposed to have any you're not supposed to care about anything right and i think the difference with vietnam is that like in world war one and two they're coming the, the soldiers are coming home as heroes and in Vietnam, of course, they're being, you know, vilified, vilified. Yeah. Exactly. Um, on March 23rd, 1970, Oliver's discharged from the Marines. He moves to San Francisco so he can live the life he wants without upsetting his Baptist family. 
because Oliver had been hiding the fact that he was gay since he was young, mm. knowing he has to keep it to himself as his Baptist parents would never accept their child being gay. So according to this Radio Lab episode, it's called Oliver Sipple, um, The Sound of Pride. San Francisco at the time, quote, is a place where you can be out, but to the people you left behind, you can still be in. So, of course, you know, that's San Francisco. Yeah. It's a place where you can reinvent yourself. So this is exactly what Billy does. He starts going by the name Billy instead of Oliver. Um, he joins the San Francisco gay community. He starts going by the name Billy. He frequents gay bars. He marches in gay pride parades. Um, he even joins the campaign for Harvey Milk, who's actually a longtime friend of his. Mm -hmm. They had become friends in New York. And of course, Harvey Milk's one of the first openly gay candidates for office. And it seems like he's living his best life despite the issues he still deals with from combat PTSD. So on September 22nd, the day in question, 1975, 33-year-old Billy is just taking one of his normal daily walks and he happens upon the crowd, gathered to see Ford outside the St. Francis, decides to wait with them so he can see the president. Yeah. So cut to Sarah trying to shoot the president. Billy's marine instincts kick in and he's able to basically disarm her despite his fear of loud noises like gunshots. Yeah. He's still able to just react immediately totally heroic um, and blocks her from taking another shot, thus saving the president's life. Wow. Which like, who the fuck? I always wonder like who, who knows what life would have been like if Gerald Ford had been assassinated. Yeah, right. In the same way, if like RFK hadn't been assassinated, I was just wonder what life would have been like. Well, just that, to imagine how close it came. Right. Two times. Yes. Yeah. And like just defying the odds. Totally. Yeah. It's also just thinking about, it, even if you didn't have PTSD, yeah, the idea that someone shoots a gun near you and you move toward them totally is so brave and so, uh, like he had to maybe overcome way worse fear than the average person right. would have, or right. or uh, that's it's just, just amazing. It's remarkable. It's heroic instincts. Yeah, you know. So Sarah is apprehended by the Secret Service. President Ford is rushed into his booze-laden limo. <laughs> Billy's taken in for questioning. He is shaking, of course, because he does he is scared of loud noises like that. He's questioned by Secret Service, released after three hours of questioning. Mm -hmm. They realize he has nothing to do with it. When he gets home, a reporter's already waiting for him there. Billy tells the reporter he wants to be left alone, like he doesn't want any accolades for this. He says, quote, I'm a coward. I don't know why I did it. It was the thing to do at the time. Once he's inside his house, uh, more reporters start calling him when they learn that he's a former Marine. They learn that he's a former Marine. Like they're like, this is a big story. We, you know, we, they start hounding him, asking him questions about his Marine training. Like they want to make this a big story. He asks them not to publish his name, address. Like, he doesn't want anything to do with this story. He's right. like, I, I reacted. I did this thing. I don't want the accolades for it. But by the following day, Billy's all over the news, on TV, on the front page of the news. He's a reluctant hero, and he really wants the media to stop focusing on him, hoping in the next couple of days they'll stop talking about it, but they don't stop yeah. hounding him. So unbeknownst to Billy, two of his friends, 
Reverend Ray Brochier's, at the time, LGBT spiritual leader and a highly vocal critic of the San Francisco police, as well as um, his friend Harvey Milk, tip off famous San Francisco Chronicle journalist Herb Kane. Herb Kane. <laughs> what do I always do? <laughs> Every time I cannot say the name. Herb. <laughs> well, because n- no one has that name anymore. And so you're just reading it as an herb. I, but I always do the thing where like, get it right this time, get it right this time. And then I still do the wrong thing. <laughs> Too much pressure. Herb Kane. A legend, by the way. Legend. Le- truly legendary. If you grew up in the Bay Area, Herb Kane was my, I just, that's some somebody my parents would talk about at the dinner table because yeah. he had a column I believe in the Chronicle. Yeah, it was like a gossip column, right? Well, it was kind of like, you know, it wasn't gossip as much as just like goings on about town. Who's who going on? Yeah, I believe so. Okay, well, they call him and they tell him they out Billy, essentially. Mm. And part of the reason Billy didn't want any of these accolades is because he didn't want it to come out that he was gay. No one knows but his friends in town. Right. And so basically what happened is that Harvey Milk was really big on the fact that every if you're gay you should come out of the closet because the um you know the gay people were hated by the public and so harvey milks and a lot of people's idea was that if you come out and you're this normal person you're not the stereotype that everyone thinks you are then it's going to give us more credibility so basically in harvey milk's mind and other people's mind outing people against their will was okay for the cause. Well, and also, and I'm not sure uh, about the timing of this, but there was around the same time, because you said this is 1975. Oh, 1975. Yeah. Because there was that, they tried to pass a proposition they made it, that made it illegal right. for gay teachers to teach in public schools. Aye. And that was when Harvey Milk took to the streets and was just like, we cannot let them do stuff like this. And like, basically started his grassroots campaign. Yeah. So I'm sure, I mean, it, it, that I, it, I feel like I could be wrong, but I feel like that was before this, mm-hmm. but it, it's all about that where, um, being in the closet is enabling these right. bigots to tell everyone else who and what gay people are when in fact right. gay people should be able to tell you who they are. Right. But what a difficult time because, totally. you know, it's, it's them just, it's two other people deciding right what this man's life should be like, which they, I feel like they even understand that it, it, they're invading someone's privacy, but it's for the, in their minds, it's for the greater good. Because he is a true hero. Right. And it's so here. So um, Harvey sees Billy's heroic act as an opportunity to show the world that, quote, gays do heroic things. And he's tired of people thinking, as he says, that gay people are, quote, limp-wristed, child molesters, perverts, you know, these fringe of society. No, they're they're Marines. They're heroes. They're people all around you. So yes. Harvey Milk kind of thwart, like went around, I think, what what Billy would have been OK with for the cause. I see that. I mean, yeah. But it essentially ended up ruining Billy's life. Dan Moraine, a a political affairs columnist at the Sacramento Bee, says Harvey, quote, used Billy's outing as an opportunity to promote gay rights. So on September 24th, the article by Herb (laughs) Kane is published and it reads in part, Billy Sipple, quote, was the center of midnight attention at the Red Lantern, a Golden Gate Avenue bar he favors. So without saying it's a gay bar, kind of implies it. The Reverend Ray Brochier's 
head of Helping Hands and gay politico, Harvey Milk, who claimed to be among Sipple's close friends, described themselves as proud. Maybe this will help break the stereotype. Hmm. So the day after Herb Kane's article is published, reporters show up to Billy's apartment to interview him. Billy tells the reporters that he hasn't heard anything from the president, like thanking him or even the mayor of San Francisco. He's only heard from the press. Before they leave, Billy asks the reporters not to disclose his sexuality. When the reporters ask about his sexuality, Sipple says, quote, I don't think I have to answer that question. If I were homosexual or not, it doesn't make me less of a man than I am. And they don't listen to him. Multiple national newspapers immediately start reporting on Billy and his sexuality. Um, these newspapers don't just hint at his sexuality. They completely spell it out. Headlines include, quote, gay vet and, quote, homosexual hero. Mm-hmm. Um, some papers even, quote, speculate that President's Ford failure to promptly thank Billy for his heroic act is a result of Billy's sexual orientation. Hmm. So, like, he, you know... Yeah, they're now they're kind of like twisting the story around. Yeah, it is weird that President Ford hasn't reached out to thank him for saving his fucking life. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. Uh, Many newspapers defend their decision to out Billy as gay. They say that mentioning Billy's sexuality is important because it, quote, presents information contrary to the stereotype of homosexuals as lacking vigor, um, which is something the reporters believe activists want. Right. Like everyone's trying to act like this is what they told us to do. Yeah, Yeah. it's good. We're saying he's a hero. Mm -hmm. Isn't this great? The newspapers feel like they are, quote, raising significant political and social issues. Then actually in Radiolab, in the beginning of the episode, they interview the woman who tried to assassinate um, Gerald Ford. Sarah Jane Moore. Sarah Jane Moore. Which is interesting. News of Billy's sexuality makes it to Detroit, where Billy's devout Baptist parents are living. And Billy's brother, George, later tells the Washington Post that seeing the news about their son being gay was, quote, an embarrassing blow to their parents. Billy's parents and siblings are hounded and teased about Billy's sexuality. At work at the GM plant, just days before, fellow employees had been calling Billy a hero and congratulating his father and brothers. But now they're taunted and laughed at um, on the factory floor. Mm. At home, Billy's mother is harassed by neighbors and reporters. She, Billy's mother tells Billy that she never wants to speak to him again. Ugh. Billy's father tells his brothers to forget that they have a brother. Billy's parents, eventually they accept him back into the family um, Billy's parents and siblings, though, they never fully accept him completely. And when Billy's mom dies, Billy's dad doesn't want Billy attending the funeral. Oh, and he God. stays home in San Francisco. Horrible. On September 25th, so just a couple days later, Billy and his attorney hold a press conference where Billy says, quote, my sexual orientation has nothing at all to do with the saving of the president's life, just as the color of my eyes or my race has nothing to do with what happened in front of the St. Francis Hotel on Tuesday. My sexuality is a part of my private life and has no bearing on my response to the act of a person seeking to take the life of another. I am first and foremost a human being who enjoys and respects life. I feel that a person's worth is determined by how he or she responds to the world in which they live not on how or what or with whom a private life is shared. When asked what he would like to see happen now, Billy says, I don't know. I'm very shook up. I fe- I'm feeling very sorry for my family. It's awful, just awful. I've got nothing more to say. 
So he's completely traumatized by being outed. The next day, President Ford writes a letter to Billy, which is publicly released. Ford wrote, quote, I want you to know how much I appreciated your selfless actions last Monday. The events were a shock to us all, but you acted quickly and without fear for your own safety. By doing so, you helped to avert danger to me and to others in the crowd. You have my heartfelt appreciation. So on the third. Sorry, really quick. I just remembered that this was President Ford's second assassination (laughs) attempt. And that's why he wasn't so quick with the thank you letters, because I bet you he was like fucking (laughs) ripping people to shreds you know what i mean like right wouldn't they have to circle up and be like okay this truly you guys this can't happen again (laughs) so there's all kinds of internal strife right that's because i was like why the hell wouldn't they thank him why wouldn't well everyone a medal because everyone everyone assumed it was because he was gay right and which is true he didn't get any kind of medal he didn't get it you know everyone was like he should have been invited to the white house and general and President Ford should have shaken his hand like he should have been receiving all these accolades. And Harvey Milk was vocal about it being obviously because he was gay. Right. You know. Yeah. So finally, it sounds like he was maybe Gerald Ford was hounded enough in the press that he sent that letter maybe reluctantly. But you're right. I'm sure there was a playbook being burnt. Yes. In the White House. Yes. I'm sure. So then in response, Billy writes a letter to Ford he says the stories about his sexuality have caused, quote, great anguish to my parents and to the rest of my family. Billy tells Ford that it's, quote, a very hard thing to have your mother and family not want to have contact with you. He asks Ford to at least send his family a card or call his family to at least, you know, yeah. reach out to them. He says, quote, I love my family and do not wish to be separated from their love and companionship. Your help would be gratefully appreciated. But there's no evidence that Ford ever makes the call. Um, He also never publicly thanks Billy or shakes his hand. And Billy, about this whole thing, just feels bitter and disappointed. He files a $15 million lawsuit against seven newspapers accusing them of invading his privacy and all the consequences that came with it. Of course, his family finding out he was gay and abandoning him. Um, And also that the newspaper, quote, exposed Billy to contempt and ridicule, causing him great mental anguish, embarrassment and humiliation. In 1984, the lawsuit is dismissed by the California Supreme Court on the basis that Billy's sexual orientation had been known by, quote, hundreds of people prior to this. But of course, those people are just the San Francisco gay community. Right. So it's not like it was a known thing. No. As time goes on, Billy's health deteriorates. He starts drinking daily, heavily. He starts receiving treatment for paranoid schizophrenia alcoholism and other health issues, including hypertension and heart problems. His health just completely deteriorates. Mm -hmm. Um, It's obvious to those around him that Billy's struggling. He gets drunk uh, and says he wishes he had never saved the president's life, saying it wasn't worth his life being ruined. Yes, I that's completely understandable. Yeah. On February 2nd, 1989, Billy's friend Wayne Friday is asked to do a welfare check on Billy. How sad is this? The the bar that he frequented all the time, the bartender hadn't seen him in a few days and was worried about him. Ugh. Like that's those were his regular friends yeah. at that point. Wayne goes to Billy's place and doesn't get an answer at the door and can already smell through the door that Billy's dead. The landlord lets him in and Billy is dead and had been for some time, a few days. Billy's sitting in a chair with a bottle of Jack Daniels nearby, the TV still on. It's 
he's died of natural causes, but he's only 47 years old. Ugh. I know. Following Billy's death, President Ford writes a letter to Billy's friends and family that reads in part, quote, I strongly regretted the problems that developed for him following this incident. It saddened me to learn the circumstances of his death. Mrs. Ford and I express our deepest sympathy in this time of sorrow involving your friend's passing. And actually, when um, he was found dead, President Ford's original letter was framed on his wall, on Billy's wall. Oh, I know. Um, Oliver Billy Sipple is buried at the Golden Gate National Cemetery. Today, multiple law review articles and more than a dozen books and commentary pieces have mentioned the ethical implications of newspapers outing Billy against his will as a subject's right to privacy. Mm hmm. Um, in 2011, Mayor Ed Lee of San Francisco signed a resolution making September 22nd, which is in two days from now, meaning two days ago for people listening, mm -hmm. Oliver Sipple Day. And Billy Sipple is thought of as an LGBTQ hero by those that know the story, despite him never wanting to be outed in the first place. And the event of saving President Gerald Ford's life, ruining his own life. Hmm. And that is a sad, tragic story of the hero, Oliver Billy Sipple. Wow. I I am from, I was born in San Francisco. Yeah. I was raised in the area. I've never heard this story. Yeah. I, the name Sarah Jane Moore was familiar. I always thought she was one of the Manson family. Yeah, no. Because every right. time her name would come up. I would just go, oh, she must have been another. Right. Like I just had, I had it also confused. And this story is, I would just think at some point I would read it in a magazine or a newspaper. Yeah. About how they, you know. I think I got it on like Reddit. It's like, God. I never heard of it before. And it is funny because when you hear the president, Gerald Ford being uh, assassination attempt happening, you think squeaky from like, yep. that's part of the narrative of the Manson family. Yeah, this one. Then two weeks then later. Then there's other one. It happens again. And that, like, God, everything about that is so fateful yeah. and sad and hard because this was a person who already was having a hard time. Right. But was kind of like taking it back and getting his life and living the life he wanted to totally. live. Getting healthy Finally. because his life was his own. Yeah, but still had so many issues. And of course, yeah, of course, she wouldn't want to be the center of attention if you are having all these issues to begin with, but also have to kind of be in the closet for one side of your life. Right. You know? Yeah. And like, yeah, the, just the, the, the outing of someone who did not want to be out is so unethical. I also think the, the way things have changed is so drastic. And I know this is such an old person thing to say, but like it, the kids today don't understand. My friend Sam Pancake, who is a brilliant actor mm -hmm. and a hilarious, so funny, hilarious comedian who, who also does shows because he just goes, right. he talked about this one time on a podcast. I think it may have been, uh, Pod Save America because mm -hmm. they were doing live shows at the improv before COVID started. Mm -hmm. And he kind of talked about that where. The kids today, the difference is so vast from how it was like in the 80s growing up. Yeah. Um, even in, you know, that recently, they don't understand how bad it was. Yeah. And especially like in, you know, when when AIDS hit, like right. it was like even if things were starting to improve, 
um, you know, in the 70s, Harvey, yeah. the actions Harvey Milk was taking, the kind of like the this upswing and then the AIDS epidemic and the what that did to people and what that did to gay visibility, gay rights, just and also yeah. just the gay population. And the mishandling, not mishandling, the outright fucked upness of Reagan and Bush yeah. just completely ignoring the AIDS epidemic. Yeah. For political reasons and letting thousands and thousands of people die because of politics. It's just, it's just, it's a beautiful thing how much it's changed. But yeah, but there's still a long fucking way to go. Yeah. And also, I think just people need to like stuff like this is like the more we can hear stories right. about that. I mean, I, I cannot wait to listen to that radio lab because yeah. what an amazing tale and, and, there's so many things like that that just are just not discussed. You yeah. know what I mean? I don't know if the Radio Labs, it's from 2017. So I don't know if you can listen to it. Like, I don't know if that's. Are you going to try to get me to sign up for a subscription? So I just was hoping that if you could sign right here. <laughs> um, no, but so you can find the episode on um, the Sound of Pride, the WNYC Studios podcast. So you can find it there. It's like Oliver Sipple from Radio Lab. Cool. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, that yeah. was a great story. Thank great you. find. Right. Totally. Yeah. I'm glad that those were good stories this week. Really good. Um, well shit. We did it again. Wow. That was that was a great show. Yeah. I'm proud of us. Uh, <laughs> 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 no, it's good. That, I mean, wow. It's almost kind of like unknown, unknown, untalked about. Yeah. Uh, stories that should actually be very widely known. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Let's fucking do more of those. Please. Um, oh, before we go, we actually do have a very, very exciting announcement. We do? Yeah. Because we have a trailer that's about oh to play. Oh, my God. <laughs> After this episode, we have a trailer that's about to play for our first original Exactly Right um, limited series. We are so excited to share this with you guys. It's been in the works for like a long time. It's been over two years since we have been working with the great, great uh, performer, writer, journalist, Ugh. superstar Dave Holmes. So talented. We're obsessed with him. The minute he was like, the minute the word podcast came out of his mouth near us, we were like, yes, any, you can do whatever you fucking want. Yes. And then the idea he had was so unique and rad that we've just been losing our minds over it. Very excited because, um, Entertainment Weekly just covered this, uh, story, which we're very, very excited about. That was, that was really exciting. And because yeah. essentially Dave, um, has been obsessed with a band called Sudden Impact, who is featured in uh, the Boys to Men video, Motown Philly, from 1991. It's been a very long time. Yeah. Uh, it's a very obscure uh, reference and moment in time when everyone used to watch videos and everyone used to know all the same all the all the same references. Yeah. We listen to all the same music. Even if you didn't like it, you knew White Snake. Even if you, you know, I mean, <laughs> yeah, it, we all, it, uh, as Dave calls it, the monoculture. We were all involved in it. Yeah, and there was a very popular video that featured um, a three-second clip of a boy band posing. Yeah, called Sudden Impact. Their name was Sudden Impact, and then they just disappeared. And Dave Holmes, who is, as everyone knows, a pop culture obsessive, has not stopped thinking about this three-second clip and who were Sudden Impact, what happened, where did they go, why did he never hear about them again? So you can find out all about 
And even if you, even if you're 12 years old mm-hmm. and you don't know any of those things we're talking about, this is the most compelling and fascinating story of one of those, uh, not even a where are they now, but where did they, wherever were they in the first place? And then from there, he so brilliantly turns it also into the story of the people he ends up interviewing about that time of place and their career. And so it's so much more than this boy band story. Right. It's about the pursuit of fame. It's about show business. It's about what are you, what you start out thinking you want and what you end up getting and how for almost everybody, that is not a straight line. Yeah. And that is not a direct route. And it's a really, really well done podcast. We're so, so proud of it. So after this episode, you can listen to the Waiting for Impact trailer. Yeah, just keep listening and you'll hear it. And uh, check out the premiere on October 12th here on Exactly Right. Um, and there will be new episodes every Tuesday. And of course, please subscribe. Yes. We know and we've told you, but it really makes a huge difference it when does. you subscribe to a podcast. That's Waiting for Impact. Please go Go subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Is it, it might be on Stitcher. It might be on Amazon Music. It, wherever you listen. Yeah. You know, all throughout, throughout thick, thin, us eating candy corn in your ear. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Stay sexy. And don't get murdered. <laughs> Goodbye. Yeah. Oof. Nice. Did it. Elvis, do you want a cookie? It's the summer of 1991 the peak of the monoculture. Everyone is watching and listening to, or at least aware of, the same TV shows, movies, and music. The internet hasn't had its way with us yet. A song comes out that summer from the R&B group Boys to Men. It's called Motown Philly. In the music video, we meet Boys to Men and the other groups in the East Coast family. Another bad creation, Belle Biv DeVoe. And then, two minutes and 38 seconds into the video, we meet another group. Five young guys in matching white button-down shirts, each with his own unique necktie, their name and lights above them. Sudden impact. They point at the camera. They point at you. Like, are you ready for sudden impact? I was a young guy in the Midwest at the time, glued to MTV, dreaming of a life in the entertainment industry. I was ready for sudden impact. The world was ready for sudden impact. Motown Philly just came out. They're on MTV for the first time. And the first question is, who's those white guys in the video? You know, like he's already promoting an act that doesn't exist yet. Here it is. You're going to love this. This is my universe. These are my, this is my record label. Enjoy. Thank you. Or pardon me, you're welcome. I couldn't wait to see what Sudden Impact was going to do next. What they did next was disappear. I'm Dave Holmes, and as a former MTV VJ and professional pop culture obsessive, I've been thinking about Sudden Impact for 30 years. I always wanted to know what happened, so I decided to find out. And let me tell you, what happened was a lot. We actually got signed to Motown off of a poster without them even hearing any music. Music probably saved his butt from going to jail. Wow, we could really make it, we could do this, we could do that. It ain't right, man. You're playing God with me. Let me fucking go. If you don't plan on doing something, let let us fucking go. Two grown men just broke up. Like, two heterosexual males just broke up. Am I still holding on to that hope? Like, oh, I can't wait to see this. I still have that. Because I don't like thinking that it's over for anybody. I always suspected there was a story behind Sudden Impact. I had no idea. I'm going to track these guys down one by one, and I'm going to find out what happened. And... 
I'm going to try to answer the most bewildering question of them all. Why can't I stop thinking about them? This is a podcast about big swings, about high hopes, about what happens when your best laid plans go sideways. It's about the 90s and what we left there. This is Waiting for Impact, a Dave Holmes passion project. Be sure to listen to the show's premiere on Tuesday, October 12th on Exactly Right. New episodes drop every Tuesday. Subscribe now on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. This has been an Exactly Right production. Our producer is Hannah Kyle Crichton. Associate producer, Alejandra Keck. Engineer and mixer, Stephen Ray Morris. Researchers, Jay Elias and Haley Gray. Send us your hometowns and your fucking hoorays at myfavoritemurder at gmail.com. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at myfavoritemurder and Twitter at myfavemurder. And for more information about this podcast, our live shows, merch, or to join the fan cult, go to myfavoritemurder.com. Rate, review, and subscribe. <laughs>